Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor. And on this podcast, we mostly do deep dives into shows we're watching. In today's episode, the fourth episode of The Peripheral, an episode called Jackpot. Once again, just like last week, directed by Ulrich Riley and written by Scott B. Smith, the showrunner and writer of every one of these episodes, actually all eight of this season. Before we get into that episode breakdown, I have a conversation with Celia, one of my co-hosts, discussing last week's episode in brief, and then stick around for after this current week's episode breakdown. I also discuss with her another show we're covering currently in this same feed, The White Lotus on HBO and HBO Max. She's caught up on season one and watched this premiere episode of season two. If you're not watching that show, it's very entertaining. I definitely recommend season one, but as it is an anthology, you can jump in directly into season two. And it just began this week. A star-studded comedy of errors among the affluent set in a beautiful resort in Sicily. Just a perfect getaway as the weather is getting colder here in the Northeast. And we also discuss The Good Nurse on Netflix, the recent based on a true story thriller starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne. And this story actually took place here, right here in New Jersey, my home state, in a hospital where my wife actually has worked. And while it's not 100% true to fact, it is pretty chilling, and we do discuss it in some detail at the end of this episode. Check the show notes if you want to jump around. I'll have timestamps for the different topics. Also an announcement that next week in this very same slot, we'll be catching up with the pretty excellent, I've been very down on these Star Wars shows, but... Andor has been truly excellent, and we're catching up on that show next week in preparation for the finale, which is just two weeks out from there. But there is basically the end of one story arc and the beginning of a two-episode story arc that wraps things up. So it's just the right time to catch up on those shows. And Ray and Nick, who have covered topics here like the Obi-Wan Kenobi show, the Moon Knight show, and other Star Wars and Marvel-related content, check our feed for other topics if you're interested. They'll be back to discuss this excellent season of TV and preparing for that finale. Once again, we will be also covering the finale two weeks out beyond there. And then, of course, the week after that, the finale of The Peripheral as well. So if that sounds interesting to you, make sure you subscribe so you know when those episodes become available. Make sure you tell your friends and family to listen in as well. Check out our backlog for episodes you might be interested in. Give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts. That would be great if you haven't already done so. It helps people find our podcast. And if you have any feedback, let us know. Need some introduction at gmail.com. Send us an email. All right. So with all of that out of the way, here's the conversation regarding last week's episode of Peripheral. Maybe about 10 minutes on that. And then we'll jump right into the recap of this fourth episode of the show, Jackpot. I have a recommendation, actually, I throw it in here now. I think I would recommend this to everybody. This is something that's available on Amazon Prime. I'd actually suggested, Celia, that we were going to cover this week to week. I thought it was going to go week to week. But instead, they dumped the whole thing right before Halloween, and it, nobody's watching this show. This is not getting a lot of traction, although the word of mouth on it is very strong. So maybe people will discover it over time, and I'll do my part to try to pitch it to the audience now. It's called The Devil's Hour on Amazon Prime, and it is a British show. What I would say about it is that it feels very much like a BBC production. Like if you've seen a lot of these police procedurals, it has elements of a police procedural, has elements of a thriller. There is this person who may be killing people. This woman keeps waking up at 3.33 in the morning, always 3.33 in the morning. And there's something going on with her. She doesn't understand 
what her connection is to this killer. There's elements of horror in it. And you're like, is this a horror movie? Is this a thriller of some kind? Is it a police procedural? And it turns out, and I guess they kind of spoil this in the trailer, but if you don't want to don't hear this part, tell me anything. <laughs> I was just going to say that it's in a different genre. It's in a genre that would be of interest to people who are watching the peripheral. Let's say that. So it surprises you in the direction it goes. It's only six episodes long. And what I would say is after hearing some pretty positive things about this, I watched episode one and I thought it was absolutely terrible, <laughs> terrible. And I forced myself to watch episode two and which was better. But the reason I mentioned that is because you may opt out after episode one, but I would tell you, you should hang in there because it's a little bit too long. It probably should have been at least one episode shorter. Episode one is terrible. Episode two, maybe episode three is when I started to groove on the show. And then I felt like the next couple episodes were a little long. It was kind of meandering. But then what I will say is that, and this is where a show can kind of make its name, the final episode of the season is, even if you just watched it by itself, is just an incredible hour of television. It's so good. And not only that, it makes even some of those boring episodes, all of a sudden you kind of realize what was happening in those episodes. It actually makes the show overall better in its conclusion. If you have a really rough go of episode one, trust me, it gets better. And man, episode six, that final episode is really, really great. And by the way, it has a very interesting ending in the fact that you could see this as actually just a setup for another season of the show, or it would actually be a fine conclusion to this story. So it's actually a pretty cool trick it pulls off there at the end. Nice. I'm going to watch it. Yeah. It's only five or six hours commitments. Yeah. And it's all available now. You don't have to wait for it. It's just available. And maybe you can watch it and we'll talk about it next week. Yes. What'd you think of episode three of the peripheral? Anything? Well, I am liking it better than the other two episodes because it is not coming off like, you know what? Let's <laughs> <laughs> not say it. Can I say it? No. no. <laughs> don't say it. Okay. I'm not going to say it. So it's veering away from the vision because at first I'm like, oh no, here we go. But it's not in the West, you know? So it's veering away from what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. And the characters are, you know, they're well-developed, I would say. And they're introducing some new characters and giving you a backstory. Who is the man who's kind of guiding her? Wolf. Wolf. Yes. So there's a backstory there that's beginning, and it's interesting. I find it very interesting. It gives you a perspective into his motivation and how he got to where he is. You would think when you meet him that he's been educated very well. And like you find out, where was that, an orphanage? I mean, it looks like he lived on the streets. The next episode that's coming out tomorrow, it's called The Jackpot. The reason that London is so sparsely populated is because some event happened called the jackpot and it killed the vast majority of the people on earth. I think the reason they call it the jackpot is the reason that everyone is kind of so wealthy and living in this very futuristic society. Imagine that you had all the technology you have now, but the vast majority of the world dies. All of a sudden, everybody gets much, much richer, right? And then with that wealth, they, you know, technological advancement skyrocketed. I think that's what's being suppositioned here in the show. I think also what happened, obviously, when 80% of the population of the world dies, that there were a lot of orphans. So these kids were living on the street, and it looks like this older couple who showed up, they said, we showed up because the government asked us to. I think that you know, the government basically said, hey, if you're wealthy, there's all these kids living on the streets. Can you adopt some of them? And then you know, they went to adopt the one girl, and then that was Alita, but then Alita refused to be adopted without Wolfgang, because he was German. 
and they changed him to Wilfred. So that's why we know now why the Wolf Wilf name renamed him from Wolfgang to Wilfred. So I like that this is a much more human series than I thought it was going to be because they're fleshing out the characters Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to what I was hoping it wasn't, which is like, everyone's a robot or there's really five of me and I can't even tell who is the flesh human and then it just doesn't matter, you know? So I like that these people feel more real. I mean, the robots are just robots. They're not like these robots that think they're human beings. So that's good. I mean, we don't know any characters in the show that are robots, right? I mean, other than like the police officers and stuff. Which are just, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. also that maid girl who he at first thinks is real, but there it's like a shell without somebody embodying it. And it's just wandering around the house, cleaning things. But I think it's his sister. Yeah, that's just artificial intelligence. So right, these these peripherals are basically those AI bodies, but that's some actual person can steer around. But when there's no person in it, you know, actual person, they just revert to their default programming. I mean, they actually raise the question here. I hope they don't go down this road, but there's that question of where Wilfred is asking the AI some questions about itself when she's not in it anymore. And it seems to like not know how to answer the question. So I'm like, please don't start telling me that these robots are going to have an uprising and want rights. Cause I mean, that sounds like a lot of, that sounds like another show. <laughs> I would love it if I had an AI so I could go out and then I can still clean the house and I can be on vacation and I could still take care of the cat and I can do all the, I could take out the garbage, but I'm really in Paris. I want one. You could do all that. You don't need an AI though. You have a Roombot to vacuum the house. You have uh, <laughs> I they, do they, have that. They, you have a robot, you have a robot <laughs> to, to feed the cat too. I mean, I had a friend of mine at work who had one of those feeders that had a camera on it on his computer. He would like go to this website and he would turn it on and he'd start calling the cats and the cats would come and meow and rub their faces against the camera and then the little food would fall out of the thing. So he's feeding it from a distance, you know. So oh, you could do all that. I gotta find that. that. I gotta find that thing. Will it feed her for two weeks? I mean, possibly. They might be crapping all over the house. (laughs) Oh, that sounds disgusting. Okay. But anyway, I love that concept. Like, that concept's interesting. I I agree with you, though. I don't want the shell of the robots to be real. What I like is that they are just robots right now. Why do they want to kill this girl so badly, though? But do you find it odd that they're so fixated on her? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. It's more important to like go after the people who are trying to manipulate the past via her. Like, why is she so important, right? Although maybe she is, maybe this is like kind of a hero's journey where she turns out to be more special than anybody knows she is, or maybe only Alita knows. This is the kind of time travel puzzle that I am interested in. Maybe it'll be revealed over the course of the show. Changing just one event in the past can have huge consequences in the future. Imagine that Alita, once again, that metaphor of playing chess and having those characters, you know, we see now episode three, you know, we now know that Alita was the one who had the models, the replicas of the homestead where they were all at with all the characters there, almost like a chessboard. And I do wonder if Alita knows that there's something special about her, not that she 
in herself is so unbelievably incredible. It's just the fact that that idea of like chaos theory or a butterfly flaps his wings and then there's a storm 4,000 miles away, the unseen consequences of actions, she might have gone back in time and said, I can prevent the jackpot from happening, which is what she's trying to do, by the way. I can prevent that jackpot from happening by making these tiny little changes in the past. And they all come back to this one person, not because she's so special, but because she's just that butterfly that is going to trigger the, trigger the storm, right? And that's that, and she's just trying to change her course. And I think that's fascinating to imagine that correct history by making little modifications in the past. I would love that because it would make it would make this so much deeper. Oh yeah, absolutely. So many layers, if that was the case. So that was a little of Celia's reaction to last week's episode. And now let's dig into this week's episode, Jackpot. So we begin in a new time frame than we've been in before. 2075 London, Wolf is on the street, living on an overturned double-decker bus with some other street kids, including Alita. He apparently isn't pulling his weight as far as foraging for canned food and other necessities and gets picked to check out something new that they haven't seen before. Apparently some food delivery but it turns out to all be just a mirage, an illusion created by some military personnel that are scooping up the orphans. They don't want to get scooped, their terminology. We flash back, or flash forward, I should say, to 2099. London is in much better shape 24 years later, by the way, considering what it looked like a relatively short period of time beforehand when you see this version of London that is completely covered in green fog or gas. We see Lev meeting with Wilf, and he's giving him the rundown of the events of the end of last week's episode. He mentions that there's an implant. Maybe they can use it to trace Alita's location. Lev goes unlikely, considering the encryption on the device, but also mentions something interesting, stating that Alita's probably going to die soon because she loses some immunity boost from losing her implant. This has not been explained yet. And of course, he also mentions that, Wilf, they're probably coming for you at any moment. There's a dead body, which apparently is a rare thing in this future. Your DNA is probably everywhere around that body. And I could send a cleanup crew to go and clean up after you, but then again, they might get caught as well. So what's the point? In 2032, Flynn continues to have issues with that spasm in her hand. And we see that eye, that same eye where she apparently received the download of data inside of her peripheral seems to be irritated when she sees it in the mirror. That turns out to be just a vision, but it is a prelude to something that's about to happen to her. This is all interrupted by the arrival of Deputy Tommy, I think I said he was a sheriff, but given his age, of course, that wouldn't have made sense. Well, he's a deputy. I was wrong. He's just checking in. He mentions, hey, you know, I saw you, Burton, shaking hands with the local bad guy last week. Also, we see these drones flying over your house all the time. We found some invisible cars right nearby. <laughs> all the things that he should have been asking questions about last week. So he keeps snooping around. Flynn comes out to meet with him to kind of get him off their trail as well. And she feels guilty about it afterwards, that she is lying to him. Burton goes, I know you have feelings for him. I know what's going on here. And pulls out that darn 3D printed version of Tommy that we saw a couple weeks back. Everyone reads way too much into this 3D printed figurine, I think. And Flynn just lays into Burton. He went off to fight the war. I know it messed you up, but I stayed behind. I kept the family together. I had to take care of you when you came back. I had to take care of mom when she got sick. I got to take care of dad when he died. I had to take care of mom when, when dad died. This was all on me. Basically, she has a fit, collapses. Her eye got all bruised again. Now that's the same eye as before. Has obvious bruising around it now. And of course, Burton is there and he's all freaked out. 
in 2099, Charisse Newland, the apparent big bad here so far seems to be, although everyone's got their own shady agendas, has had a new Daniel printed up. These are these kind of robots that we've seen before that are just an empty slate with a projected image of a face or whatever on it. And in this case, she's projecting Daniel's face. She makes some corrections to his personality to create the illusion similar enough to Daniel. I'm very curious as to how this works because she can correct his temperament, but he does seem to have some resentment towards Wilf. So there's some degree of an actual personality that's imprinted here on this, this blank robot body. Not clear yet on that one. But Charisse seemed to have missed him enough that she wanted a new version of him around. And from this new, newly printed version of Daniel, she does find out about Wilfred. And via Wilfred, of course, his employer, Lev. Back in 2032, Burton takes Flynn to get checked out at the clinic where Dee Dee works, who happens to be Tommy's fiance as well. And Dee Dee says, you know what? This would normally look like a mall seizure, I think, is what she diagnoses it as. But you don't have any indications of that. You seem pretty healthy. And Burton can't help but say, well, you know, she's been using this new headset. She's been wearing it a lot. Says probably a little too much. Even says where it's from. It's this Colombian company. This is all too much information, by the way. And she even wants to start looking it up. So you know what? Keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you have secret technology from the future. Shut up. Back at home, we see that Flynn is using a different headset, just a standard VR headset, reliving a Halloween memory appropriately enough in this week of Halloween, where she and Burton and her dad are trick-or-treating. Burton comes in to apologize, saying, you know, he feels responsible for everything. She wouldn't be in this situation right now if he hadn't asked her to go into the headset in the first place. And of course, via that, he's really saying, I'm sorry for everything else that happened. The fact that you had to be here alone with mom and dad and everything that went wrong and how she's been having to support the family this whole entire time as well. She says, honestly, she puts the most positive spin on this that she can. And I think she really sincerely feels that way. Her mom can see again. She has seen and done things that she couldn't possibly have imagined. She loves being in the peripheral, which might explain why she hasn't really addressed this to Wilf at this point. She probably doesn't want it to end. Meanwhile, she's supposed to go back into the peripheral to meet with Wilf. Burton and his friends are arguing about who should go in to meet with their benefactors from the future. And while they're fighting, Connor goes, wait a second. I can go into an actual body. Here he is, a triple amputee. He's like, I'll do it. Send me. In the future, Wilf goes looking to talk to Lev, runs into Lev's wife, Dominica, and she wants a little dance. She thinks that she's seen Wilf catting around the house. She's been wondering, is he untrustworthy, sneaking around? And what she realizes is that he's been dancing. He's dancing, dancing away from any kind of connection to anybody else. And then we see that Lev is virtually or remotely viewing this and seems to be enjoying it in his own perverse little way. When Charisse shows up, well, hello, Charisse. I guess my security's not very good. Lev plays it super cool, though. Charisse makes an extremely strained metaphor that is mocked by Lev, but still, <laughs> making fun of a bad scene doesn't make it any better. But we do find out something useful here. There are three walls, three power centers in this future. One is the Klepts, the criminals, who united during the jackpot and through violence and threat were able to restore some form of order, but became too powerful. Therefore, the Met, the police, were formed and keep them in line. And what technology funds all this on both sides, I'm sure, for the Klepts as well as the Met and 
for this utopian world that everybody lives in now. It's our RI, the Research Institute, providing the technology to everybody. And it's these three powers together that keep the world in order. At least that is the theory provided here by Charisse. And if anyone gets a little too big for their britches, one of those walls will collapse. And if one wall goes down, it's precarious. All of society collapses, as does this metaphor. <laughs> Lev makes a threat saying that, hey, if one of us disappears, we're the clept, we're tight. We were united. And that's where our strength came from. So you come after one of us and we all will come after you. So be careful. And she reminds him that, hey, wasn't it one of the clepts who turned in, turned on their own, one of their previous leaders, and they died in a terrible, terrible way. A weapon that she still has. All she has to do is feed someone's new DNA to this weapon that will literally physically consume that person and anyone whose DNA is even similar. You eradicate entire family line potentially. And as she's exiting, I have to rewatch this scene to see how she even does this. It's more than a magic trick at this point. <laughs> she takes his teacup, but I'm pretty sure his, her hand never made the move towards the teacup. So I'm not sure where it went. So that creates a threat to Lev. First of all, an interesting parallel here. We're seeing one parallel. There'll be another one coming up very shortly in this idea that you come after one of us, you have all of us come after you, which is exactly the threat that Burton made last week. And here we have a similar threat from Lev. So is this a hint that Burton and his friends are actually at risk from someone in their own midst? Meanwhile, Wolf and Ms. Zuboff are still dancing. They missed this whole entire interaction and they're interrupted when Connor arrives in the peripheral that looks like Flynn and he is happy to have that body start smashing shit up and he's going to make a break for it. He's like, I'm going to run around all over London. I haven't had a body in a long time and it's strong. I can do crazy acrobatics in this thing, but they turn him off kick him back out. He's not happy about that. And at this point, Wilf enters that VR memory that Flynn is experiencing to fill her in on what's been happening. A couple of interesting things here. We see a real affinity between Flynn and Wilf once again. She's been doing some research about the Zubovs in her timeline and mentions that his entire family tree has been erased in this stub. Meanwhile, he infor informs her that now that they know about this reaction she had, they do not think it has to do with the headset, but they don't know. So they're going to do their research on their end and basically tell her something pretty nice. Don't use it until we know. And as I mentioned earlier, the eye that is having this reaction is the eye that inside of the peripheral of the first peripheral she was in, the one that looked like Burton, where the data transfer occurred. So I am pretty certain, once again, my theory from the start, she's the one who has this thing, which we still don't know what it is. It's a MacGuffin. We see Lev asking Charisse once again, what was it that was stolen? She still won't say what it was, but I'm pretty sure it resides inside of Flynn's mind. Before exiting, Wilf also confides in Flynn that Alita is actually his sister. So here's a second parallel I was mentioning from before. We now have two siblings and a large conspiracy that can consume them both. But maybe in the end, these two sets of siblings will be the last one standing. After that, getting this information about the massacred family in the past, Wolf goes and has an interesting conversation with Lev. He has to go to this very fancy restaurant. I'm sure these are actual locations in London, by the way, beautiful locations, but I don't know where they are. <laughs> I've never been to London. I wish I had, but don't recognize these locales. He has to wear a blindfold because some of the attendees at this club don't want to be recognized. And he informs Lev at this meeting that his entire family has been murdered in the stub and somebody from the future 
has probably done this. Lev doesn't seem though so concerned. Lev mentions one way that you can use a stub to make some money, and that's by running risky drug trials in that stub and using that information to manufacture medicines in another stub or in your current timeline. He also mentions that he's the one who paid to have his family exterminated back in Flynn's stub. I'm not sure why he does this. Maybe he read too many Marvel comics and was a big fan of Kang, or he's a huge fan of Highlander. There can be only one. Have to call out this really funny crossfade they have here from London, the Thames River in London, to the main street in their North Carolina town. We found out this is in North Carolina this week. And let me know, is this a real North Carolina accent? I've been to North Carolina. This does not sound like a legitimate North Carolina accent. If you are from North Carolina, please email me and let me know if this sounds legit to you or not. But I did find it very funny to see this crossfade. <laughs> Usually you have like crossfading from one city into another. <laughs> it just And of course, that's what you're doing. But <laughs> this is quite a different sense of scale here. Flynn goes and meets up with Connor and Burton playing Kill Mary Fuck in their trailer where he's cooking breakfast. Why does he cook in the house? Why are you cooking the trailer? Just a question. Is he not allowed in the house? <laughs> has he set foot in the house? I think he has. Yeah, he definitely has. <laughs> it's not like he cannot enter the house. He has like some really bad blood with his mom or something. But he is cooking in the trailer. I'm not sure why. She mentions to them about the whole diorama that she saw. And of course, we finally see that metaphor of the chessboard. I've made a couple times here in this recap so far. Burton mentions the Flynn that you have to start acting like this is a game. What would you do if this was a game? What would be your gambit? Turns out that gambit is to go back in again and negotiate bodies for Burton and Connor. <laughs> Randomly here, by the way, the peripherals being used to play this child's game with Zuboff's kids. And this is just when Flynn enters the peripheral. She's a little insulted by this, but it, it doesn't mean that she enters the peripheral outside of the house. So she's got a beeline to exit the courtyard. She's taking their advice. What would you do if you were playing this as a game? Break the rules. See how the game reacts. Ash, who's there when she arrives, is trying to have her disconnected. But it turns out her friends at the 3D print shop are using all of their hacker skills, which means that they have to type really, really, really fast. This is how hackers hack in the movies. They type really, really quick. And they're able to keep her from getting disconnected. And this goes on for a while, actually, just to pad out the length of this episode. And it looks like they finally bumped her out when they get her right back in there. I thought it was out. They pulled me back in. And she just asks Ash, what happened to all the people? I'm not sure why they're keeping this as a secret from her. I mean, it's pretty upsetting stuff, I'm sure. But still, she's going to find out sooner or later. And we finally find out what the jackpot was, which it wasn't one thing. It was a bunch of things. It started with blackouts, which I assume led to civil unrest. Then came a plague that killed a large percentage of the population. Then natural collapse. And then a little dash, just a little dash of domestic terrorism. Apparently a nuclear bomb detonates right in North Carolina, right in their hometown. This, of course, is all very, very upsetting to Flynn. And she comes back into her body, rattled, and they ask, did you get those bodies for us? Of course, this is not her priority at this moment, but she probably doesn't want to tell them everything that she just encountered. End of episode. All right, so how did I feel about all this? I would say that I am feeling something for Flynn's character now. I think that's where my empathy lies right now in the show. And via her, I care about her relationship with her brother as well. As far as the future goes, I'm supposed to feel this connection to Wilf. I'm not feeling it yet. I'm definitely supposed to feel that there's going to be potentially some romantic connection between him and Flynn. Definitely not feeling that. I think everybody on the show is playing it too cool, the performer, but also probably the 
writers and creators of the show, he's supposed to be very aloof, have an orphan mentality where he can't trust being close to anybody. But it's making me alienated from the character as well. And I hope that I warm to him a little bit more over the course of the show. I think the show needs that and I'm not there yet. On the negative side, one thing I really disliked aggressively in the episode is, and it's something that's so cheesy in a lot of science, science fiction shows, but it's the whole representation of, of the jackpot. I mean, really, is this how they would <laughs> capture the history of that event? And it's just like having a lot of 3D imagery that's not quite finished looking. I made the analogy that this feels like a high budget version of a sci-fi network series and even more so in that particular case although special effects are better than you see in those shows but the ethos of it seems to be very much like a sci-fi network type so that i really did not like uh, in general for the episode this is a lot of middle there's a lot of laying groundwork i did find some of the discovery here about lev's fixation with exterminating his lineage i'm sure there's a strategy to that that he's not expressing completely so that's kind of intriguing to me and I'm now starting to get curious about, you know, we're halfway through the season. What direction are we going to go into? What is this MacGuffin? What is this thing that is now, I'm pretty certain at this point, is inside of Flynn? And how will it potentially prevent this apocalypse? So I'm interested in the mechanics of the story. And this does a good job of laying it all out. I'm still just not emotionally connected to most of the characters, although I am feeling something more for Flynn here now. And also we see the coming attractions. I cannot figure out from those scenes of next week's episode what they're actually teasing there, which is fine. But it does seem, at least my gut instinct, is that it's cha the, sh the shape of the show is changing with this introduction of these new characters in that preview. So I am curious to see how it goes from this point on. And we're halfway there. We're halfway through. I think this is probably the weakest of the episodes, but this happens a lot of times in a middle episode. You have to lay out a lot of breadcrumbs to set up things that are coming later. And that's usually not a really elegant way to do that. So do you agree? Do you disagree? How are you liking the show so far? Drop us an email at needsomeintroduction at gmail.com. And now stick around. I'll be talking a little bit more about the White Lotus with my sister. And as I mentioned before, next week, not only will we continue to cover the peripheral episode number five, I think it's called What About Bob? This new character we're discovering is Bob, I think. But of course, catching up on Andor. So tune in next week for that and tune in right now to hear our conversation about The White Lotus and also The Good Nurse on Netflix. Whenever I stay at a White Lotus, I always have a memorable time, always. Welcome to The White Lotus in Sicily. La Dolce Vista. You guys are here to learn about your Sicilian roots. Sounds like a fun boys trip. Wasn't supposed to be a boys trip. We're on a family vacation right now, and it's just the three of us, because all the women in our family hate you. Please, can we just drop it? Now that he's loaded, you think he regrets marrying such a dud? What is going on with you? There's a reason they invited us here. It's like, you sold your company, you got rich, and now he's your best friend. Are these the kind of people we're going to be hanging out with now? Did you vote, babe? Be honest. I did. Didn't I? Doesn't matter. You can talk about White Lotus also, if you want to talk about that a little bit. I love the White Lotus so much. Have you seen the season one or are you just jumping into season two? No, I binge watched season one, which was really good, by the way. Mm -hmm. Have you seen season one? Mm -hmm. 
I love that that lady is back, the yep. um, insecure Coolidge. lady. Mm -hmm. Tanya, <laughs> She's Tanya. so needy. So I was excited when she was back. I was like, is she playing the same character? Yeah. Or, but she is, yeah. And I assume, I mean, this is going to be an anthology now, so I, I have to assume it will be the case at this point that she will simply be visiting each one of these resorts and we'll see everything that happens around her. Yeah, she because she says every time it, I visit a White Lotus, so... How great is it, though, that they were in Hawaii, which was, wow, yeah. so beautiful. During and the pandemic. now they're in, yeah. where are they now? In Italy. Italy, right outside. Sicily. Sicily, Sicily right. Ooh, I love this. I love travel porn shows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this was very fun. Yeah, and I, I had some issues with season one. I got into this in that episode. If anyone hasn't caught up on that, definitely check out the episode we had earlier this week about the white lotus and anybody who didn't watch season one of the white lotus you can, this is an anthology you can definitely jump into season two jennifer coolidge her character tanya does carry over from season one to season two but i am pretty sure it's going to be written in a way where it does not matter if you missed anything that happened in the first season because she's just a small part of this large ensemble cast i think it's off to a very fun start i felt i i think maybe i found the first episode of the first season funnier but I feel like in this case that I think that the um, character development here, we're vested in more storylines here after this one episode than we were in that first season. And that first season, by the way, was HBO had nothing to put on the air because of the pandemic. They reached out to Mike White and they asked him, was there anything he could write that they could shoot during the pandemic? They said possibly Hawaii because Hawaii had incredibly low COVID numbers at the time, almost none at all. He's like, okay, well, we'll fly everybody to Hawaii where there's no COVID or low COVID. And we'll shoot everything outdoors. And uh, here we go. We'll make it about these people on a trip. And HBO was, and he wrote the script, assuming that, you know, you usually have to write the scripts and then you get a writer's room with like a team of writers that kind of massage the scripts. And HBO was just like, green light, let's go. Because <laughs> they were so desperate for content. So that first uh, show is, I think there's some issues with its plotting. When you write just one version of a script and go right into production, which is probably given that, I mean, it's an incredible success story and also very popular, by the way. The show became very popular over the course of its what run. What you mean is you think there should have been more character development? In, I mean, this is a much broader conversation, but I feel like Mike White has a very specific perspective, maybe a little cynical uh, about humanity in general. And I feel like we get a little too much of his perspective in him writing that original show. And like I said, probably close to a first draft of that original show, which would have been different if it was him in a room, like traditionally in a writer's room with a group of writers massaging the material to give people more depth, more humanity. And I think over the course of season one of The White Lotus, I think that everybody does start off in a place where you basically hate everybody in the show at the beginning, or maybe you, you like some of the service, uh, you know, service workers. And then over time you get a little annoyed with them. And then you get like maybe more compassionate towards the rich people. And uh, that might happen over time, but I still felt like it was a little too cynical, especially, you know, not to spoil season one, which I'm not going to, but you'll know what I'm talking about. I felt like the button on the season, that last moment was really, really cynical. It kind of left a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. And I think that's what I think hopefully is a little buffed out here. And I think at this point, it feels a little more like light. I, I'm sure we'll have some very dark topics. I mean, we have three <laughs> bodies floating in the water at the beginning of this episode. So, you know, it's going to get darker, I'm sure. It, it's not as angsty, let's say, as, as that first season was. Yeah, that was very angsty. But I was just looking at it like travel porn and, <laughs> you know, narcissistic personalities, like purely comedy. Right. With some very dark undertones, 
when you think about them. It's funny though, because they say comedians are, a lot of them anyway, are tortured a little. They have issues or they've had difficult upbringings. So they have turned that into to humor. So <laughs> I'm watching this and I'm thinking, hmm, I feel like whoever wrote this is kind of tortured because of the perspective you were talking about. Right. Because everyone has likable qualities. Well, not everyone. But then really like tragic things happen to them. But it's put in a way that is, I mean, it could be funny. This is where I'm bringing up the dark comedy, comedians, dark backgrounds. Tell me some of that wasn't funny. Like the way the kids were, you know, talking to the dad and then what happens to the guy who's really like harassing his employee for sexual favors that he kind of goes along with. So it doesn't make the scenario as, you know, terrible, you know, had he not gone along with this. It, it's just so inappropriate in yeah. a way that's kind of funny. Oh, yeah. Because you're like, oh, is. my God. You don't know, like, oh, this is so wrong, but it's kind of funny. So it was like that kind of show in Hawaii. Yeah. So I was like all in. Yeah, I mean, like the thing I think is so interesting about the show is that everybody, every one of the characters in there are unlikable in some ways and then likable in other ways uh, in season one and now in season two as well. Sometimes they're in the right and sometimes they're absolutely in the wrong embodied in the same character. So in our conversation, the conversation I had with Sona, for example, she simultaneously empathized the most with the Aubrey Plaza character. She's a lawyer also. She says that she's been the stick in the mud in these type of situations. But at the same time, she feels like, come on, it's like, you know, you're on vacation, you know, your your friends, supposedly friends, are like staying in the very next cabin, open the partition, have some cocktails together, you know, basically make the best of the situation. So on the one hand, Sona basically shares her life perspective, like, you know, you don't watch the news, you don't do what, what are you talking about? Right. But at the same time, she's also like, you know, don't be the stick in the mud. So I think that you can be both things at the same time. And I think that you see that also in season one. The cynicism, I think, comes from the underlying perspective of that show, which may be correct. It's just never lightened by anything else in the fact that like everybody in every single level of society, and maybe that's the point he's trying to make, is abusing somebody else. So, you know, the the, the people who are the service staff there at the hotel are simultaneously being submissive to these entitled bratty rich people. But then at the same time, they're also tormenting them, like specifically the, the guy who runs the resort in like not giving that Jake Lacey, you know, what he wants, which is like the correct room and all that stuff and not admitting the fact that the booking went, was incorrectly handled, etc. So he's being annoying in the limited power he has. But then, like you said, he's actually being maybe sexually harassing one of his employees. So like basically everybody is leveraging power against somebody who at any, every level they're at. I get that guy doing that. Like, and I don't mean rich versus people who have less money or, I mean, you chose to work there. So, and right. someone's paying you. So you, that is your job. You're just going to do your job. Cause I've worked many different careers, you know, me. <laughs> so I've been in situations where I'm like, is this person, do they really think that they can talk down to me. You know, I get into those situations where I'm like, are they out of their minds? You know, so I get where this guy would be passive aggressive about not wanting to give that guy what he wants because right. 
like, who are you, who do you think you are? So I sympathized with that. He went way too far. But then the more nudgy the other dude became, because he was so neurotic, the more he felt like he can do these things. I, I got that. But at the same time, you're right. On the flip side, he is a creepy dude. Right. And that's why it's it goes cuts both ways, right? You sympathize initially, you sympathize with the guy who runs the resort, but then when he is basically intentionally at some point, you know, Jake Lacey's correct. He's intentionally, you know, subverting him at some point here, right? Like denying that he received the call that he knows came, et cetera, right? Being intentionally obnoxious. But like you said, at the exact same time, he's in the wrong because like here he is on his honeymoon, having this experience that like very few people can even uh, afford in a room that arguably is nicer than the one he originally booked. And uh, and he's still just so fixated on the fact that's not the room I booked. And it wasn't even booked by him. It was booked by his mom. His mom shows up in that whole entire dynamic. Just to talk about that particular dynamic. Think about <laughs> think about what the, the wife is going through in that situation. This is supposed to be her honeymoon. Her husband is completely fixated on this other thing. And she's uh, falling out of love with him. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like minute by minute. <laughs> absolutely. She is so repulsed by him by the end of the thing. But then... Yeah, I guess, you know, what does that say? Money wins out. I mean, for me, that left such a sour taste in my mouth. If she had made a different decision there at the end, uh, and we are spoiling that at this point, (laughs) but if she had made a different decision there at the end, I would have felt like they would have still had some redemption to the storyline. And instead of feeling like uh, in the end, nothing changed right after all that. Right. So, and and then you just think about her stepping into that situation. What happened on this weekend is just going to keep happening over and over again through her her whole entire life. And she's, and and that's very cynical that Mike White basically at that moment is saying people really are incapable of changing. And it makes her look weak. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That in the end, she had all these morals. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah, and I, she I betrays really all of them. Her. She betrays all of them at the end, right? It makes you it makes you dislike her, right? Exactly. All the empathy you have for her is out the window in that last minute, and she doesn't even get a chance to redeem herself in any way. But maybe she will. You know what? Maybe some of these characters will come back in future series. So maybe there is a chance to redeem some of these characters. I hope they do. I hope she comes back like a mad diva, looking all ridiculously beautiful and saying really mean things to her neurotic husband and like poking at him and making him more and more neurotic, just like the manager did at that hotel. Like, I want to see her do that. Yeah, I actually- Just because she's so annoyed by him. Yeah, this is one of those few ideas that rather than being like, because it's an anthology and they can write it in a new location with different characters, I would actually love the idea of like Mike White probably individually can't churn out one of these, probably take a year or more in between just to be able to shoot them and put them out and everything else. I wouldn't mind at all to have it just like as a mini franchise where some of these characters could pop up in other in other storylines. It'd be kind of awesome, actually. I wouldn't mind. That yeah. Much. Like, where are they now? Right. Right. Yeah, two years later, what are they doing now? Like, they show up at another White Lotus. Yeah. And, and what's they're this married kid to somebody now? else. They're divorced. They're going through and this something. Guy, and, and then the teenage kid who's what is he, a rower? <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's what working. Is he, at, maybe, a weight? Maybe he's working. They, at they the wanted White him Lotus as now. a weight to balance out the boat. He, he's like a weight. So, yeah, like, how's he doing? Hey. (laughs) What's going on? Just, you know, work's been pretty awful without you there. You and I were partners. You know, I don't want to talk about work. Is it because what they're saying is true? Oh, what do you think about the good nurse? I liked it. 
it's very depressing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know how much of that is fictionalized, but uh, the actor who plays this nurse guy who does some pretty bad stuff. What was that? 400 people they think he might have done this to? Yeah, I mean, at least 40, but it could have been hundreds. Yeah. They think it's 400. I was reading the things at the end of the show. I mean, they they convicted him of 40, but he, it, could yes. have been much, it could have been much higher. Yes. Like, what was his motivation? I mean, here we go. We're watching serial killers yeah, exactly. in one form or another. Like lately, it's all serial killers. That goes back to the idea that, of course, there's going to be serial killer stories every week because that's what people like to watch. But it's also just the fact that the, the motivation is really strange. And I think I, I mentioned this to you already, but like my wife worked at that hospital relatively soon after this thing happened. For me, the most disturbing part of the whole entire story is the fact that, you know, and if anybody who listened to the very popular Dr. Death podcast also knows this, but the medical system, basically these hospitals do not want anyone finding out that they employed these absolutely terrible people who were killing people. So they shuffle them off. And then when they call for a um, recommendation, they give them a positive recommendation and they don't warn anybody because they're like, well, we can't tell them what's happening or else we'll get sued. And then it just goes on and on and on for decades <laughs> and hundreds of people die and there's no accountability and it's just insanity. But, it just seems like he didn't even have direction on who he picked. How did he even pick anyone? I would have liked to know more about that, but I guess you would have to speak to him directly because yeah. this is an actual person who did these things. So I thought the movie was very well done. The acting was really good. He really did come off like a psycho. Yeah. Good for him. He's a pretty creepy you know, guy, by the way. If you read the Wikipedia article. Yeah, he's kind of creepy. My wife read the Wikipedia article yesterday after watching this uh, because she had a lot of the same questions you had. The crazy thing about it is that while this guy was working in these hospitals, nine different hospitals that this happened at, multiple times, he A, got fired for being a creep, got fired because they thought he was killing patients in almost every circumstance. Every one of them said that after he left, their death rate went way down. All these weird, suspicious deaths disappeared. No one ever raised an alarm. The hospital that he doesn't actually work at, um, Kim was reading this article saying that all the nurses knew from room, from the rumor mill that he was killing patients and they were going to hire him. And all the nurses said, if you hire him, we will all quit. And that's the only reason the hospital did not hire this person. <laughs> they wow, would have hired they him. really need nurses. They would have hired him no matter what. Oh, and the other thing to, to your point is that he, in that period of time, multiple times tried to kill himself, multiple times had to go to a psychiatric hospital for, you know, having uh, for psychiatric problems, I guess. And also uh, he got kicked out from one of his hospitals, got fired because he was stalking one of his coworkers and had literally been in her house. She woke up with him standing over the bed. So this guy was like a complete red flags flying everywhere. And everybody's just like, I guess we'll just keep him on staff. Everyone's so obsessed with QAnon conspiracies and like, you know, who, who's doing all these horrible, horrible things in the world? It's us collectively looking the other way and just allowing our coworkers to murder people in front of us and not doing anything about it. And that's 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 At the one real point. Evil. She asked him, like, why would you do that? And he's like, well, no one stopped me. Right. Yeah. He's a serial killer at heart. Yeah. And this was uh, his method. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty nuts. I do think it's interesting serial killer movies are so popular and that we have watched you know several very different styles of serial killer movies like this is also one it's never ending the the only reason you're being drawn attention to it now is because 
you know, we've been covering here on a podcast, but I mean, the number one most popular podcast genre is true crime. And you look at those true crimes, their most popular episodes are all about ser serial killers. And it's not like this is new. Like think about all those serial killer movies, you know, after the success of Silence of the Lambs, we had decades of, you know, dozens of Silence of the Lambs knockoffs and TV shows, you know, like Hannibal and stuff like that. And, you know, and Dexter. And I mean, it's a never, people are constantly fascinated with serial killers. I do like that at least this current spate of new serial killer shows seem to be more interested in actually revealing the true systemic failures that allow this to happen rather than making these people like into criminal masterminds that no one could have caught them when in reality it's like they got caught 15 times and they just let them walk out the door every time you know like that's 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 what actually happens right so it's unfortunate but that's the case but at least people should be made aware this is insidious in the fact that we allow it to happen not insidious in the fact that these people are there and no one could catch them it's like if we just did our jobs properly <laughs> we would have caught these people many many times over so i wonder if this could even happen in today's world, with all the awareness of how many things have slipped, I wonder if this could happen again. And then I think it can. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I talk about the Dr. Death podcast. I mean, that guy, and they literally looked the other way and paid the premiums. And they're like, well, we can't fire him. He brings money to the hospital. Just we kill some of his patients. It's so disturbing, <laughs> though, because I would like to think I would do better. But then I wonder, what does that even say about us as a human race? I have so much to say. We cannot even get into this. <laughs> but really, I I don't really know what I would do. Uh, right. My assumption is I would not do this. Yes, that, that's what I was going to say. The real, that's what I was trying to get to earlier was that the real nefarious part of all this is A, that there are people who know what are going, that's what's going on and they look the other way, usually because like their job's on the line or they're getting paid off or something and they just let it happen. And then what happens is that the lower down people who like these nurses in this staff in this staff or some of these police officers who knew what was going on the Dahmer case etc that they say well I'm sure somebody's on top of this because you know I'm not I'm not the high man on totem pole someone must be doing something and they just keep allowing it to happen it's like the I mean this is like a whole other digression but it's like what happened in the Adnan Syed case where the cops like pressured that one witness into saying that he wasn't in a, in the library even though they had the video of him in the library when supposedly he was committing the murder and then they said, but why did you testify to that on the stand when you knew it wasn't true? And they're like, well, the cops told me that they had all this other evidence. They just needed me to tell this story this way. And they're like, uh, but you know that you were the only piece of evidence they had. And they're like, I didn't know that. And um, I, just they, I just assumed they were telling me the truth. And it's just like, yeah, everybody just kind of assumes that everybody else is doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then eventually you're just like, oh, wow, we're like only co collaborating on this conspiracy. And we didn't even know it. And that's what ends up happening over and over again. Yeah, I don't even know what to say. It is definitely worth watching. And then I can't wait for all my other shows to come back. I'm going to do just the HBO shows I love. I love Euphoria. I don't know if uh, they have another season coming on, right? It's, 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 it's coming later next year. I'm not sure how they're going to pull that off. Uh, yeah, they're getting so much older. It's so funny because this, the cast of that show when they shot the pilot, which was before COVID, were all like 18. I think the youngest person was 17. Like a year after that, or eight months later, after they shot the pilot, they shot the full season. And then the season aired and it was a big hit. And then COVID hit, which delayed production. So like 
basically all those kids who are like 17, 18 years old, like literally college, uh, high school age, when the next season comes around, they're all going to be like 25 years old. So it's like, okay, okay, like how? <laughs> I'm be- interested though. If, if they could pull off the same mood, you know, that almost nightmare. Yeah. I was like, you, when, <laughs> when, Andrew is here like with his girlfriend. I'm like, you guys better never do these things. (laughs) This can never happen. Never. I'm like, you should watch this and just don't do anything these people do. But like, it's fascinating. I also love industry. It's actually really good. I have not seen that. And that just got renewed for season three also. It's very dry, but it's, it's good. Hacks is really good. Yeah. Hacks is a lot of fun. Yep. I love Starstruck. I have not seen that yet. I've heard it's good. Oh, it's really good. Mayor of Easttown, Barry, Succession. Barry, yeah. A lot of people should watch that. I cannot wait for like these shows to come back. I'm like in suspense. Unfortunately, we're going to have like a dead spot for HBO shows in the near term. But early next year, we will get The Last of Us, that new horror movie based on the video game that we saw, a horror series, I should say, with uh, Pedro Pascal that they just previewed recently. That should be a very big thing for them. And they spent a lot of money on it from the guy who made Chernobyl. Great miniseries. If you've never seen Chernobyl, it's incredible. One of the most yes, terrifying things. So good. Yes. And Andrew just saw it. He loves it. Yeah, it's incredible. And then uh, after that, we have Succession, which is coming in the spring. And then, like you mentioned, we have Euphoria, which probably wouldn't be around until the end of the year. Oh, and before then, by the way, the reason, the other reason that Euphoria is going to be delayed is the director... Sam Levinson, who is the writer and um, directed the first season. He only directed a few episodes. He directed the entirety of season two. It's like like a one-man show. He is now directing The Idol, which is that cult Hollywood TV series starring The Weeknd, who's actually the producer. And he basically wrote the story that the show is based on. So basically, Levinson is going to be working on that, which is going to delay the Euphoria season. But that's coming soon, too. That They've already had trailers for that. That's probably coming around January or February. So HBO wow. has The Idol coming. HBO has The Last of Us coming. HBO has Succession coming. And HBO has My Brilliant Friend. And yeah. I love that. I love, love, love everything about that series, by the way. But it is foreign. You got to be okay with subtitles and all that. But my gosh. So there's that, too. Yeah. Is Big Little Lies coming back? I don't think so. I don't think they had a really big season last year. I I like that. But Hacks is coming back for another season. So Hacks is really good. Yeah. Unfortunately, by the way, they just announced that there is almost no chance, because you asked me about this last week. There's almost no chance, according to the head of HBO, that there will be another House of the Dragon season ready for 2023. So they're looking at 2024. I have to wait another year and a half for that, at least. Well, we're just going to have to find other things to watch. You know what everyone could do until all this stuff comes on? Watch all the Sex in the City on HBO from beginning to like the last movie that came out. I did that. It's amazing. I love it so much. Yes, it's cheesy. I would say you could binge all that because the second season of that is coming on the, 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 whatever the reboot of the show is coming on. That is definitely coming on maybe within the next month or two. As far as I know. Can always binge watch that because, you know, again, it's like travel porn, except it's New York and they have everybody wears weird, cool outfits. And I love that. So <laughs> that's, and I like the storyline. I actually like these women. So if you have nothing to do, I guess no filler, and you're a girly girl or, you know, whatever, anybody, so many people like Sex in the City. I think even people who say they don't like it, they still like it. 
So oh, I, yeah, put I know a lot of that on. <laughs> I know a lot of guys who watch uh, Sex and the City too. They, you know, it's for, so fun. Yeah, it's not. I don't think it's, plenty of guys watch that with their wives and enjoyed it. So yeah, yeah, with their wives. I mean, <laughs> it's fun for everyone. You know, you know, you want to watch all that. I, you know what, I never really got into it. I, I mean, I remember when they used to run it like every night. They used to run it. And if it was on, I would just dip in here and there. And then Kim used to watch. She binged a bunch of it at one point. So whenever it was on, I would like watch. But like I would just watch it if it was there in the background. I never felt compelled to watch all of it. Or to, Well, you want to you know? start in the beginning so that you can mm. get the history of these girls. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not sure if I want to make that And all their commitment. boyfriends. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. And all their shoe obsessions and, <laughs> and, and their brunches. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. And and the parties. No. It's so and their breakups. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> you're I mean, like back, never back in, the, back in the day they used to have it on right after the Sopranos. And I knew plenty of people, plenty of people who would like tune in. These are guys who would tune in for the Sopranos and they did watch the Sex of the City afterwards. So I mean they were, they were Yeah, I know, right? Right. So yeah, I did that recently. I did I'm up to and just like that, which I've also seen twice. Oh, so, but I, I have to watch it again because, you know, it's part of the theme, you know, that I got to start and finish everything. So Kim did not like that show, by the way. Kim did not like that show. It's the, the okay, but I have to watch it because it's like an end cap to this. So, you know, again, if I'm thinking about it in a kind of like visually stimulating kind of end cap thing to happen. Although something very depressing happens in this show. Yeah. That, that kind of that, really that was, lightens the mood. That was part of what Kim didn't like about it actually. Yeah. There was no reason to do that. I feel like that couldn't, that didn't well, now, now, happen. Now he's been, now he's been canceled. Like coincidentally he's been canceled. Like, so now he probably can, you know, cause of all those rape charges. So now it's like, they would have had to write him off the show anyway. So it kind of fortuitous well, for them. At least. Oh, so they did this. <laughs> no, it was by by accident. Yeah, they you know it happened. Wow, like, like the accusations came out like right around the same time. So. so, well, good for them then. Then it doesn't matter. But yeah, that was the only downer. Otherwise, you know, all right. But I'm I'm going to stop talking about <laughs> right. sex in the city. <laughs> 